coming to comic book newsstands on October 1976. In a special 50-cent giant issue of The Brave and the Bold, Batman teams up with every single DC character ever created. Hats off to artist Dick Dillon for fitting nearly 8,000 characters in every panel, with enough room for the word balloons. Comic fans can send their Get Well cards to Dick in care of Artist Sanitarium, Woodstock, New York. In a brand new Warlord adventure, Travis Morgan misses a rent payment and has to face the fury of the Landlord. In the next issue of The Metal Men, the mechanical team is shaken up as Tin joins the city police force and becomes a copper. Doc Magnus, meanwhile, fights his own robotic creations in a completely unique feature entitled Magnus, Robot Fighter. Enter the primitive world of Kong the Untamed. In an all-new, improved, more savage than ever, without phosphates, shocking story, Kong becomes a king and is abruptly sued by Universal Pictures, Paramount Pictures, and RKO. In an all-new Adventure Comics, Aquaman uses his telepathic powers to create concentric circles around his own head. And don't miss the return of the Spectre, more merciless than ever before. The spirit of vengeance chains a gang of murderers to a television set and forces them to sit through an episode of Hee Haw. In the astonishing upcoming issue of The Unexpected, a man steps into a deep hole and falls in. A plane takes off from New York to Philadelphia and arrives safely. A shy man mails a letter to his cousin in the next town and a day later it is received. On sale in October 1976 from DC Comics. Look for the new DC Bullet logo at newsstands everywhere. And now, Professor Zoom Productions. In association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure, Fire and Water presents The Amazing World of DC Comics. 
hosted by Zoom Yukonori. Featuring the works of Michael Uslan, Paul Levitz, and Jay Cheever Loophole. Greetings and welcome to another episode of FW Presents, the anthology series of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Zoom Yukonori. And this is another installment of my showcase of the amazing world of DC Comics, a mail-order fan magazine published by DC back in the mid to late 1970s, when they were still known as National Periodical Publications. As stated in the first installment of Amazing World, released on May 18, 2017, The idea of producing this fanzine was conceived by then-DC Comics production manager Saul Harrison, who assigned Bob Rosakis to oversee the fanzine's development. Mr. Rosakis, as many of you know, was a longtime comic book fan before he was a longtime comic book professional, and the rest of the editorial staff for Amazing World comprised of other young DC Comics fans turned pros through the production of this publication, as well as other DC Comics work. Together, they were fondly referred to in the magazine as the Junior Woodchucks. This nickname was created by Mr. Rosakis initially as a joke, a sly reference to Carl Barks' Walt Disney comics, but it later became their somewhat official designation within the fanzine. The Woodchucks included people who would later be well-recognized comic book industry names, including Carl Gafford, Mike Gold, Paul Levitz, Jack C. Harris, and Michael Uslan, as well as stalwart contributors E. Nelson Bridwell, Mark Evanier, Tony Isabella, Neil Posner, and Mark Grunewald. Lasting for 17 issues, Published from July 1974 to April 1978, this fanzine featured 48 black-and-white pages featuring DC Comics-related news and listings of upcoming DC comic book issues, plus exclusive interviews, retrospectives, and behind-the-scenes information about the DC Comics operations, plus humorous bits, unpublished comic book stories, and unused cover art, as well as text pieces featuring the fan-beloved nuanced details about our favorite DC Comics characters. And to be clear, this was 48 pages of heavyweight white paper with a finished size of 8.5 by 11 inches, wrapped by a beautiful full-color heavy stock cover. And all of this was available to fans willing to mar their precious DC comic by clipping out the mail-order coupon as well as pay $1.50 per issue, and I believe that price also included the shipping in a flat cardboard mailer. As was done in the first installment of The Amazing World of DC Comics, this show will comprise of selected readings of my favorite articles and text pieces from throughout the entire run, rather than a full page-by-page review and critique of a single issue and its contents. I do plan to post these articles on a gallery page associated with this podcast on fireandwaterpodcast.com.
So let us begin with an interesting editorial published in The Amazing World of DC Comics, Issue 11, cover dated April of 1976, and was released in April of 1976. Because this was a direct mail-order publication, the cover date lined up with the actual distribution date. Meanwhile, the DC Comics themselves had a cover date that was two months ahead of the actual date, because that served as the pull date to tell the news dealer when to remove unsold stock from the newsstands. This issue of Amazing World was a particular favorite of mine, and I have already read two brilliant pieces from it in my first installment released on May 18, 2017. The theme of this issue is DC Supervillains, with the cover image featuring said villains essentially throwing out the heroes of the Justice League of America, directed by the amazing pencils of stalwart Justice League artist Dick Dillon. However, writer Michael Uslan apparently let them back in, for his opening retrospective article focuses on a number of superheroes who had stepped over the line. The Wrong Arm of the Law by Michael Uslan Assume that a superhero like Superman somehow existed in real life, or on Earth Prime for the sake of DC continuity, during today's post-Watergate era. Would he be welcomed with open arms? It's hardly likely. Chances are, he'd be feared by the people who would see him as an all-powerful Orwellian big brother, an entity with the power to dictate his own law and enforce it. In all probability, psychologists would flood the talk show circuit debating why the Man of Steel wears a gaudy costume. The armed forces would test his capacity as an offensive weapon. The policeman's union would complain that he was eliminating too many jobs within the department. The Senate and House would insist he reveal all his secrets in committee sessions. Scientists would put him to work in research departments curing today's incurable illnesses. Lawyers would continually challenge his source of legal authority. Legislators would introduce strict laws to govern his movement in and out of their respective states. And newspapers would publicize the many charges and countercharges aimed at him. In short, Odds are that he would become so suspect that he might be forced to continue his activities undercover or outside the limits of the law. Some of the more realistic fantasy heroes in comic books have suffered from similar problems, which in turn have forced them to work outside the law. Even DC's biggest superstars had to face this sort of challenge in the early days of their careers. In 1938, Americans heard the rumbles of Nazi tanks in Poland and the whispers of a fascist race of self-proclaimed supermen emanating from Germany. At about that time, a mysterious being with unnatural powers debuted without fanfare in the United States, a man who called himself Superman. The public might have been terror-stricken, on Earth too, of course, 
with the thought that the emerging enemy had already reached the shores of America. Actually, the early Superman was the Dr. Pepper of his time, a hero who was so misunderstood. In his premiere appearance in Action Comics No. 1, Superman's mission was interpreted correctly by the governor who announced, He's not human. Thank heaven he's apparently on the side of law and order. But many people did not share the governor's opinion, and by 1940, the police were continually trying to bring in the Man of Steel. Perhaps Superman's most relentless pursuer was Sergeant Casey of the Metropolis Police Department. He was the officer that almost captured the red, white, and blue vigilante in the Superman Limited Collector's Edition, number C-31. The concept of the hero wanted by the law was probably borrowed from the Green Hornet radio shows. The grounds for the warrant were the same, taking the law into their own hands. Even though over the years Superman began to work in cooperation with domestic and international authority, specifically the police, FBI, and the United Nations, he still has had various run-ins with the law. Each time, however, it has been due to trumped-up charges, frame-ups, red kryptonite, mistakes, part of a master plan to bait certain criminals, or other unusual gimmicks. Far more frightening for the public and its defenders in blue was the mysterious arrival of a man cloaked in the costume of a bat who prowled the streets of Gotham City by night. Initially, Police Commissioner Gordon didn't know what to think of this character, as he revealed in the first story panel of Batman's debut in Detective Comics number 27. This fellow they called the Batman puzzles me. Gordon wasn't puzzled for long, as the first time he sighted the masked manhunter, just two pages later, he yelled for his officers to get him. The Batman vanished in a parade of lead, courtesy of the Gotham City Police Department, but the actions of Gordon were actually justified. It seems that this early version of the Caped Crusader graduated from the Spectre School of Justice, with a degree in, if I don't like your looks, I'll kill you. His definition of justice was self-made, and he administered it mercilessly by heaving criminals off buildings to their deaths on the cold concrete below. Little wonder that the Batman would be the object of a police manhunt for years to come. The clincher came at the end of that same first story, Case of the Chemical Syndicate, in which the Batman's heavy fist sent the villain plunging into a vat of acid. Batman sloughed off the incident by saying, A fitting ending for his kind. Batman's idol, the Shadow, would have been proud. The cops were relentless in their chase for the Batman. By spring 1940, in Batman Comics No. 1, the Joker knocked out the Caped Crusader and left him for Gordon's men. One officer probably related to Superman's Sergeant Casey, reached out to unmask our hero, who then suddenly revived and smashed through a nearby window under a hail of police bullets. Again, he barely managed to escape the law. The Batman still had a long way to go to win the Congeniality Award at the Gotham City Policeman's Ball. 
Even as late as 1943, when Batman appeared on the silver screen for the first time in Columbia Pictures' serial, The Adventures of Batman, he was still being sought by the cops. It really wasn't until he began to radically change his image that the public began to recognize him as a hero. Batman tempered his cold, harsh methods and modified the frightening effect of his costume by reducing the size of his bat ears, using a smooth flowing cape rather than the jutting bat cape with which he began his career, and further modifying his image to that of a more conventional superhero by acquiring the assistance of young Robin. In recent years, Batman has changed his image again, to a point combining the early image with the later one. This has been an effort to regain some of that fear-striking loner of the night stature. Of course, he has again begun to experience renewed problems with the police, the public, and various candidates for district attorney and city offices. Though he has been using his own methods of tracking and capturing crooks, he now leaves the details of justice and punishment up to the courts. Batman and Superman may have been sought by the police in those days, but at least their intentions were always honorable. Plastic Man, however, started out as the long but wrong arm of the law. Eel O'Brien was a gangster and armed robber. He and his gang busted the safe at the Crawford Chemical Works one night in August 1941, as reported in Police Comics No. 1, gaining $100,000 in the process. During the escape, the guard shot and wounded the fleeing eel who tumbled against a vat of acid. The acid spilled on him, entering his bloodstream through the wound. He was nursed to health at a rest haven by an order of monks who listened to Eel tell the story of why he went wrong. Well, you see, my folks died when I was ten, leaving me alone in the world. I tried to work hard, but people kept pushing me around, always pushing, until finally I got tired of it and started pushing them around. I'd completely lost faith in mankind until... Well, you've given me a new slant on things. And so, Plastic Man became the world's most unique superhero, while continuing on in his secret identity as the evil Eel O'Brien. Eel participated in his gang's crimes, but nabbed them in the end as Plaz. But since Plaz was not an authorized undercover agent, he was therefore operating on the wrong side of the law. It wasn't until later in his career that he joined the establishment by becoming a special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Luckily, he recently shifted to the NBI, or National Bureau of Investigation, or else his FBI affiliation might have led him to the wrong side of the law again during the Watergate cover-up. Where there have been troubled superheroes, there were also superheroines in trouble. When the Black Canary debuted in the Johnny Thunderstrip in Flash Comics No. 86, August of 1947, she was a villainess. If it wasn't for Johnny Thunder's guidance, she might never have reformed, and Green Arrow would be chasing her today for a vastly different reason. The Harlequin was another female felon, the nemesis of the original Green Lantern. 
She debuted in his strip in All-American Comics No. 89 as Alan Scott's secretary. She was also enamored with Green Lantern, but since Green Lantern never paid any attention to her, she took on the guise of the Harlequin in an attempt to get him to notice her. Harlequin was no supervillainess at heart, so time after time, and usually without Green Lantern's knowledge, she arranged things so he wouldn't be hurt and anything stolen would be returned. Harlequin eventually began secretly working for the FBI as an undercover agent against the underworld, much as Plastic Man did via his Eel O'Brien disguise. These were some of the old-line DC heroes, but what about the more recent ones? When Steve Ditko first came to DC in the late 1960s, he created a crew of original heroes. At the time, Ditko was into the hero-wanted-by-the-law concept. He had created the new Blue Beetle and the Question for Charlton, worked on Spider-Man for Marvel, and created Mr. A for his own ventures. All of these characters were pursued by the police. His first two outings for DC carried this over in the form of the Creeper and the Hawk and the Dove. The Hawk and the Dove were two teenage brothers. Much like students of the late 60s, they were politically oriented, and their ideologies became their action names. Hank Hall was the Hawk, the domineering, hot-tempered brother. Dove preferred to back down and walk away from a conflict in order to avoid a fight. Dove's actions were interpreted by onlookers, including the Hawk, as fear and cowardice. It was Superman and Clark Kent split into two costumed heroes carried to ultimate extremes. Their father was a court justice, and a stern man who felt that these two punk incognito vigilantes were obstructing justice, breaking laws, and violating the constitutional rights of the citizenry. He inspired the public pressure that led to the police putting the heat on the two heroes. Often, the judge tried to be the balancing factor for the two extremes of his sons. However, if he was the victim of his own narrow thinking, so too were his sons, for neither the hawk nor the dove were willing to compromise his way of thinking. As a result, they fought between themselves and left each other in tough predicaments. It wasn't until they began working alongside the Teen Titans that they were legitimized and more accepted by the public and the police. Toward the end of their short careers, the Hawk and the Dove often operated separately. The Dove never was very interested in being a superhero, but the Hawk reveled in it. Had the comics market not begun to shrink at that time, chances are the Hawk might have moved on to a career as a lone superhero and part-time member of the Teen Titans. When the rumors first began to fly that Steve Ditko was moving over to DC, word was out that he had created a new character who was a cross between the Shadow and Spider-Man, with yellow, green, and red throw rugs covering his body for good measure. Fans screamed, Impossible! But the rumor wasn't far off. Jack Ryder had been implanted with a transformation disc that changed him into the powerful Creeper. All his intentions were good ones. 
but since he looked like the father of the Joker and was always around the scenes of crimes, neither the police nor the public could be calm and reasonable enough to understand him. It seems that the DC superhero has journeyed a long way to wind up where he began. The cycle has completed itself, and once again the law is after those who are actually working for it, in their own way. Even the earlier vigilante-style heroes, given time, grew to join the establishment and even work for the FBI. Superman, Batman, Plastic Man, Black Canary, and others became accepted as public defenders, just as, given time, Creeper, Hawk and Dove, and the New Wave heroes may one day be welcomed by the citizenry in the interest of truth, justice, and the American way. You have been listening to The Wrong Arm of the Law from the Amazing World of DC Comics, Issue 11. Michael Uslan's thoughtful exploration of the somewhat lawless beginnings of classic DC Comics heroes of the 1940s and the 1960s. In 1976, Mr. Uslan pondered that the new wave of DC superheroes would begin their careers being held in suspicion by the public as well as the law. Essentially, the situation of Marvel Comics' Spider-Man throughout his long comic book history. However, for the following decade, that did not seem to be the case for DC heroes for the most part. The Creeper notwithstanding, of course. There would be some storylines in which a DC hero would be temporarily at odds with the law. There was a 1982 storyline in the Batman and Detective comics in which a corrupt mayor of Gotham City had Commissioner Gordon removed from his post and Batman framed for crimes that made him a wanted man for a time, until the political corruption and frame-up came into the public light. And in 1983... The Flash had killed his arch-foe, the Reverse Flash, in an act of desperation to save the woman he loved, and the character had undergone a lengthy legal procedure of his arrest, trial, and eventual vindication throughout the rest of his comic book series. It would not be until after the so-called Crisis on Infinite Earths that DC Comics writers would explore a more somewhat realistic public response to superheroism. Frank Miller's revision of The Batman, for example, made the Dark Knight detective an urban vigilante at odds with both the police and the underworld. And the Legends event in 1986 made the American public fear and protest the actions of costumed heroes, to the point of which those heroes were legally prohibited from operating in public. Of course, that particular take was the work of apocalyptic villainy and mind control or at least some form of mass persuasion, which ended once the Legends event was over. And the Gotham City Police would ultimately overlook the Batman's very illegal acts of assault, property damage, and coercion for criminal confessions. Eventually, 
There would come a time when DC heroes would become less of the stoic, inspirational models of virtue, to the point of them performing some not very heroic deeds, at the direction of an editorial seeking to make the characters more gritty, edgy, and relatable to today's relatively imperfect modern audience. Perhaps this approach has worked for DC Comics economically, but to me, it seemed to essentially move away from the earlier mission statement of being a DC hero. To do the right thing because it is the right thing to do, as well as inspire others to do the same. At least several of the DC Comics animated series and live-action television shows do not lose sight of that. And before I go down this particular rabbit hole any further, let us take a podcast promo break. When we return, we will explore a different legal issue that involved two iconic comic book superheroes. Greetings. I am Mortimer Claptrap, former host of Silent Pinions, the Jericho and Northwind podcast. And yes, I did say former host because I was only involved with that podcast in order to reap the rewards of advertising revenue. And then I had discovered that I actually needed to conduct research and actually read the rubbish stories. And extolling all of that effort for what the numpty wankers at the hosting site say is just for one listener. Some gormless Gumby shacked up in some treehouse in some god-awful street, the name of which I cannot be bothered to remember. No, if I'm going to bloody read the stories, I would rather go for the dog's bollocks than the naft cod swallop. Which is why I'm absolutely chuffed to bits to announce my new podcast featuring a comic book character that I have researched for many, many months. And have actually enjoyed said research without needing to be a tad squiffy. The character I am talking about, of course, is DC Comics' first Silver Age superhero, the Manhunter from Mars. So prepare yourselves, dear listeners, for the most intelligent discussions you will ever experience from the most knowledgeable expert on the Martian Manhunter. Very few people know that the Martian Manhunter's actual Martian name is Johann Johannes, and we will explore Johann's Silver Age adventures in which he teams up with his alien sidekick Zowak to thwart the sinister schemes of the diabolical Diable and his idling head. We will also thrill to the Bronze Age Justice League of America adventures, which demonstrate how Johan was always the heart and soul of the JLA. All of this and more will be coming soon to my brand new podcast, Johannes, Your Highness because the Martian Manhunter rules. For years, the Fire and Water Podcast Network has found its joy talking about comics. From Aquaman and Firestorm to Batman and Plastic Man, from giant treasuries to pocket-sized digests, From massive miniseries events to singular one-shot adventures. From romance to horror to whatever the hell Ohatmu or not is. In the last year, they've begun to carve a path through their favorite television shows, such as MASH, 
Cheers, and Justice League Unlimited, and there's no sign of them stopping. What medium will fire and water conquer next? Introducing Fire and Water Records, the music anthology podcast from the Fire and Water Network. Find your joy in all new ways as members of the Fire and Water Network and their friends discuss favorite songs, albums, concerts, and artists. Hang on, I've been doing a music show for two years. Featuring Record Revolution. Join the Brothers Daily as we catalog the essential years that shaped popular music and our own lives. A very daily Christmas. An annual celebration of our favorite holiday tracks. Plus, all new episodes of Zoom for Sam. The show in which I share my joy of Samantha Fox by spotlighting a single single every single episode. And Pod Dylan. No, not Pod Dylan. We discussed this. That's staying on its own feed. Not Pod Dylan, but everything else I said. Plus, so much more. There's even a chance David Ace Gutierrez will show up. Which brings us back to Fastball, which is really one of the most interesting American bands in the world today. When you think about the number of side projects and solo projects associated with the band, it actually almost out. Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's here. Now that's what I call Grande. Grande never give you up. Grande never let, let you down. down. Grande never run around and desert ya. Call Grande Solomon Grande. Born on a Monday. Touch on Grande's back. She says Grande is grub. Grande, cause Grande is Grande. Touch on Grande's back. She says Grande is grub. Karaoke's biggest star. Solomon Grande. The latest hits. Grundy got pen. Grundy got apple. Her apple pen. And Grundy wanna have fun. Oh, Grundy just wanna have fun. An incredible five C days. Hey, Grundy met you. And this is crazy. Here's Grundy's number. Call Grundy, maybe. Woo, Grundy Rebel just for kicks now. Grundy kick it like it's 1986 now. If you want to be with Grundy, got to get with Grundy's friends. Music for everyone. Hey, pretty lady. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, for Grundy style. Grundy gonna knock you out. Grundy mama say knock you out. Break down. Now, that's what I call Grande. Welcome back to the amazing world of DC Comics. Our next piece is a fun yet educational feature from the amazing world of DC Comics issue 17, 
released in April of 1978. This was a special Shazam issue, dedicated to Captain Marvel and the Marvel family. Captain Marvel had only been published in DC comic stories for about six years at the time of the release of this issue of Amazing World. The hero was actually created way back in 1939 by writer Bill Parker and artist Charles Clarence Beck for Fawcett Publications. Mr. Parker was tasked to create the lead adventure feature of Fawcett Publications' first comic book anthology magazine. His initial concept was actually a group of six men, each possessing one unique superpower drawn from a mythological hero. The idea was inspired by the legendary Knights of the Round Table. However, Fawcett General Manager Ralph Day was against the idea of a superhero team, so Mr. Parker essentially combined all of the group's individual powers into a single character, which would be designed by C.C. Beck. The six mythological heroes who provided the powers were Solomon, Hercules, Achilles, Zeus, Atlas, and Mercury. Mr. Parker used the first letter of each name to create the magic word, Shazam. Captain Marvel was essentially a commercial rival to DC Comics' Superman. And the Captain would actually battle the Man of Steel in a number of DC Comics stories, including the 137th issue of Justice League of America, as well as a battle-sized Treasury comic story in Limited Collector's Edition, issue C-58. However, their first epic confrontation did not take place on a comic book page, but rather in a courtroom. When Titans Clash in Court Written by Michael Uslan, J.D. With an assist by J. Cheever Loophole, LSMFT. In which Captain Marvel is killed, not by Savannah, Mr. Mind, or Captain Nazi, but by the most powerful entity of all, a lawyer. Shazam! pleaded Billy Batson. Overruled, screamed the judge, warning the boy that another outburst of thunder and lightning would result in his being held in contempt. Superman proceeded with the prosecution by calling a parade of witnesses. Fred McMurray, who accused the defendant of stealing his face. Freddie Freeman, who turned witness for the prosecution by claiming that Billy Batson kidnapped him and locked him in a closet until he was brainwashed into agreeing to join the Marvel family as Captain Marvel Jr. Sterling Morris, who was tricked into admitting on the stand that Billy Batson was, indeed, a reporter like Clark Kent. And even old wizard Shazam himself, who broke down and admitted he had read Action Comics No. 1, which possibly influenced him subconsciously, before he turned Billy Batson into Captain Marvel. Yes, that was the way the most colorful lawsuit in comic book history might have unraveled. 
but actually it was more like any other series of decisions and appeals that drag on for 12 years. Tiresome, time-consuming, and expensive. Though the action was begun on September 5, 1941, the stage was actually set in an earlier case from 1940 called Detective Comics Incorporated v. Bruns Publishing Incorporated. DC Superman had been on the stands less than a year when the first issue of Wonder Comics was released by Bruns Publishing's comic book division known as Fox. The date was May 1939, and the lead feature was a new character called Wonder Man. It was drawn by a budding artist by the name of Will Eisner. The executives at DC in those early days included Harry Donenfeld and M.C. Gaines. Their belief was that Wonder Man was too close to Superman in character and story. Wishing to protect the copyright of their hot Superman character, they instituted a suit, claiming that the copyrights they owned on Action Comics to date, 11 issues at this time, were being infringed by Bruns. The judges hearing the case for the United States Circuit Court of Appeals, Second Circuit, New York City, were not comic book readers. However, their impartial look at the comic books of the two companies proved to them that Bruns had indeed come too close to Superman. Their analysis was as follows. Each publication portrays a man of miraculous strength and speed. Each hero at times conceals his strength beneath ordinary clothing, but after removing his cloak stands revealed in full panoply in a skin-tight acrobatic costume. The only real difference between them is that Superman wears a blue uniform and Wonder Man a red one. Each is termed the champion of the oppressed. Each is shown running toward a full moon off into the night, and each is shown crushing a gun in his powerful hands. Superman is pictured as stopping a bullet with his person, and Wonder Man as arresting and throwing back shells. Each is depicted as shot by three men, yet as wholly impervious to the missiles that strike him. Superman is shown as leaping over a twenty-story building, and Wonder Man as leaping from building to building. Superman and Wonder Man are each endowed with sufficient strength to rip open a steel door. Each is described as being the strongest man in the world, and each as battling against evil and injustice. That kind of analysis did not bode well for Wonder Man, nor Captain Marvel and the others waiting in the shadows. Brun's defense was centered on the idea that Superman himself was not original, but merely a comic version of Hercules or other mythological heroes. The court disagreed, finding an original arrangement of incidents and infringement by the defendant of the literary and pictorial details in the Superman strip. Probably the most significant part of this decision was the circuit court's change of the decree that had been issued by a lower court. If the circuit court had left the lower decision intact, it probably would have meant that D.C. was entitled to a monopoly of the, quote, mere character of a superman who is a blessing to mankind. 
In simple English, that decision would have barred the creation of any non-DC superheroes. There would have been no Golden Age of Comics, no Spider-Man, no Captain America, no Captain Marvel, possibly no Plastic Man, etc. Today's stands would have been filled with DC superheroes, Archie, Richie Rich, Romance Comics, Mickey Mouse, and Howard the Duck. Maybe. The decree was strong enough, however, to take care of any heroes that tread the Superman line too closely, and the years have seen such unnotables as Superwoman, the double life of Private Strong, and an early Fawcett character called Masterman bite the dust. They pose no real legal problems, but the Big Red Cheese refused to give up without a fight. And what a battle it was! By March 1948, when Superman finally dragged Captain Marvel into the courtroom for the trial, Detective Comics Incorporated had merged with All-American Comics Incorporated to form National Comics Publications Incorporated. National, represented by ace trial attorney Louis Neiser, brought action against Fawcett Publications Incorporated, who published the comic books Cap starred in, and Republic Pictures, who produced the movie serial The Adventures of Captain Marvel in 1940. DC's claim was infringement of the copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics and Superman magazine. The charges claimed that Fawcett copied DC's material and used the copied material in Captain Marvel Adventures, Wiz Comics, Captain Marvel Jr., Mary Marvel Comics, WoW Comics, America's Greatest Comics, and Master Comics, that the movie serial did the same, and that merchandise using the figure of Captain Marvel constituted unfair competition. This last charge succeeded in scaring off any licensees who were contemplating producing games or toys based on Captain Marvel rather than Superman. As a result, over the years Fawcett was forced to produce and distribute Captain Marvel merchandise almost exclusively on its own. In defense of the charges, Fawcett claimed that it did not infringe, that Superman's copyrights were invalid or abandoned, and that there was no unfair competition. Republic, meanwhile, filed a cross-claim against Fawcett that stated if Republic is held liable, Republic shall have a judgment over Fawcett for the amount awarded to D.C. This was based on contract agreements in which Fawcett had warranted to Republic that they owned the Captain Marvel copyrights free and clear. In stating the facts of the case and a history of the two companies, Judge Cox made two interesting remarks. One, based on the exhibits of comic books he had been shown, he lists the first issue of Wiz Comics as appearing in January 1940. Since the first issue of Wiz was actually numbered 2 and carried a February 1940 date when it appeared on the stands, credence is given to the rumor that there were a couple of copies produced of an actual Wiz number 1. No collector has yet been able to turn up one of these rare gems. 2. The judge included the following sentence in his statement of the facts. Captain Marvel closely resembled Superman in his athletic figure and in his costume, 
as well as in the superhuman feats he performed. That's quite a statement for a judge to make before the case is presented. It was just a hint of things to come. Superman's initial strategy was to get Captain Marvel to admit that his creators, developers, and portrayers had access to Action Comics and Superman Comics before The Big Red Cheese was published. This fact was conceded by Fawcett. The next step was for Superman to try to prove copying. Some Fawcett employees swore under oath that some Fawcett executives told them to imitate Superman in dialogue and script as much as possible. A freelance artist claimed that C.C. Beck, Captain Marvel's first artist, told him that he copied Superman. Beck subsequently took the stand and denied this. Expert witnesses were called in by each side and succeeded in totally contradicting each other. The judge's remarks after this session were that, quote, It would serve no useful purpose to recite in detail the conflicting testimony, for I am satisfied from all the evidence that there was actual copying. Comic book fans who had seen both Superman and Captain Marvel stories can draw their own conclusion as to whether the judge was right or not. Some of the similarities that convinced Cox were same physique, clean-cut faces, acrobat costumes, boots, and cape for flying, leaping great distances, flying, strength, and speed, imperviousness to bullets, shells, explosions, knives, and poisons, similar settings. Substantially, all the feats performed by Superman are later duplicated by Captain Marvel. Identical phrases, expressions, and dialogue secret identities as normal human beings, both reporters. Both have mad scientist enemies who resemble each other. They got their jobs the same way, etc. The two differences listed are that Captain Marvel has no love interest like Lois Lane, while Superman has no ever-present evil enemy like Savannah. Now it was Captain Marvel's turn to attack. To do so, he turned to the Superman newspaper comic strips, being syndicated at the time by the McClure Newspaper Syndicate. He showed that Superman's creators, Siegel and Schuster, agreed to do a daily comic strip starring Superman. These new strips would be copyrighted by McClure, but the copyrights would revert to DC at the end of six months, whereas DC would reprint them in Action Comics or Superman Comics. Quote, By a separate agreement, Siegel and Schuster were employed by Detective on the same day to do the work, and they agreed that all the material should be owned by Detective, and, at its option, copyrighted in its name or in the names of parties designated by it. The trouble occurred when all but very few of the strips syndicated around the country appeared without the correct copyright notice, the C in a circle followed by the year in the name McClure Newspaper Syndicate, or without any copyright notice at all. The lower court held that there was an abandonment of the copyrights on Superman by D.C. through McClure, and that with no valid D.C. copyrights, Fawcett had nothing to infringe. Case Dismissed Captain Marvel, Mary Marvel, Captain Marvel Jr., Uncle Marvel, 
Hoppy the Marvel Bunny, and Old Shazam were joined by Bullet Man and Bullet Girl, Ibis the Invincible and Tala, Spy Smasher, Mr. Scarlet and Pinky, Golden Arrow, Captain Midnight, and their lawyers as they celebrated next door at Mario's Restaurant with beer and pizza. Perhaps they would have lived happily ever after, but D.C. appealed the decision to the United States Court of Appeals, Second Circuit, and found themselves before one of the most famous judges of all time, Learned Hand. In reviewing the lower court opinions, Hand concluded, quote, The evidence leaves no possible doubt that the copying was deliberate. Indeed, it takes scarcely more than a glance at corresponding strips of Superman and Captain Marvel to assure the observer that the plagiarism was deliberate and unabashed. But the lower court had shouted that there was abandonment of copyrights by D.C. Not so, said Hand. In order for D.C. to have abandoned its copyrights on Superman, it has to do so by some, quote, overt act that shows its purpose as being one of surrendering rights and allowing the public to copy Superman. There was no evidence of this requisite intent by either DC or McClure. The fact that many of the McClure strips carried some kind of notice showed no intent to give up the rights. Logically, they would have no conceivable reason to do so. As long as the title, Superman, was retained as DC's property, and DC merely licensed out the property, they did not lose their hero because of McClure's negligence. If McClure, in its contract with DC, promised to affix a copyright notice and didn't, DC could end the license and sue for damages without losing their rights to Superman. Similarly, McClure had the same right of action against any of its newspaper clients if its contract with them called for a promise to affix the copyright notice as set on the mat of the strip McClure provided them with. Still, there must be at least some attempt at notice to save the copyright. If there is a total omission of the notice so that the infringer doesn't have any actual notice that there is a copyright, the copyright becomes invalid. The question for the court was how many copies of newspapers with total omission of notices would be enough to invalidate a copyright. The cases show that, quote, very few would still be sufficient to preserve the copyright. Hand interpreted the term, very few, generously, and held no abandonment or forfeiture here by D.C. or McClure. It also disallowed claims of abandonment for trivial mistakes in DC's notices on Superman issues number 5 and 6, which were not listed as copyrighted by Detective Comics Incorporated, as would be correct, but by Superman Incorporated. The court found Superman Incorporated to be a, quote, dummy company for DC with the same officers, headquarters, and personnel. The mistakes, therefore, were insignificant. The way Judge Hand and the others saw one superhero to be a deliberate and obvious copy of an earlier one seemed to show an ignorance of comic books both as an industry and as an art. 
no mention was made that Captain Marvel was a cartoony parody of Superman. No research into the character treatments, story, or art styles was ever made. That same reasoning today could bring conclusion that All in the Family and I Love Lucy are the same because both are comedies about families, etc., etc., etc. Han's knowledge and opinion of the case and the parties involved is perhaps revealed when he denies DC's claim of unfair competition. Han says that the buyers of comic books probably wouldn't be misled into thinking that a Fawcett comic is a DC comic or vice versa. It is this likelihood of buyers being misled that determines unfair competition. But Hand goes on to imply that this doesn't matter in the case of comic books because no buyer knows or cares which company produces which comic book. In denying DC's claim, Hand says, quote, In the case of these silly pictures, nobody cares who is the producer, least of all children who are the chief readers. The strips sell because they amuse and please, and they amuse and please because they are what they are, not because they come from D.C. Would a D.C. or Marvel fan agree with this? Is this a statement based on ignorance of comic book publishing? Or is this wise dictum from a respected judge? The truth. You decide. But that was not the end of it. The judgment in favor of Fawcett was reversed, and the case was remanded back to the district court for further proceedings. In 1952, Judge Learned Hand issued a clarification of his opinion. First, he said that DC's request for an injunction to stop Fawcett from publishing is a question for the district court to decide. Second, he stated clearly that he found Fawcett to have infringed Superman. Third, and to everyone's chagrin, he said that it was not determined just which Fawcett strips infringed just which DC strips. Quote, that will demand a comparison of each strip put in suit by the plaintiff with Fawcett strip, which the plaintiff asserts does so closely copy that particular strip. Each such comparison really involves the decision of a separate claim. There is no escape from it. How true. In other words, DC had to go through every Superman story published through 1952 and find panels or whole stories that show Superman doing or saying something that Captain Marvel later seemed to copy. To do this, DC then had to go through every Captain Marvel story ever published and find all offending panels and stories. Fawcett then had to go through every Captain Marvel story and try to find an earlier picture of Captain Marvel doing what Superman did. Also, Fawcett had to go through the adventures of all other non-Fawcett and non-DC superhero comics published to date to try to locate scenes of another hero doing or saying what Superman did or said before Superman did or said them. Sound confusing? It was. Numerous huge scrapbooks were prepared by each side at huge costs of time and money. Whole staff of researchers had to be hired. Old comics, literally thousands of them, had to be bought and cut up and pasted into the scrapbooks. 
Lawyers had to inspect each one, and their fees grew larger and larger. Finally, in one last outburst of sanity, Fawcett screamed, Enough! It was 1953. Comic books were in the worst sales slump they had ever been in. A censorship board loomed ahead. The federal government was planning an industry-wide investigation. The superhero trend was almost dead. Economically, it just wasn't worth battling anymore. It would be better for Fawcett to close their comics operation than to continue this legal war. The volumes of evidence and the huge scrapbooks were locked away in the D.C. vault. Because comics were selling so poorly, Fawcett closed down its whole line, including the non-Captain Marvel titles. Some titles, like Hopalong Cassidy, were sold to DC. Others, like Six-Gun Heroes and Clint Curtis with the Road Knights, made their way to Charlton. Charlton even took Hoppy the Marvel Bunny, only to avoid a new lawsuit they changed the color of his costume from red to blue, removed the lightning bolt insignia, changed the magic word of Shazam to Alizam, and changed the title of the strip to Hoppy the Magic Bunny. Fawcett settled out of court with DC for a reported $400,000 plus court costs. They also agreed never again to publish Captain Marvel and the Marvel Family. Epilogue Epilogue 1 Coincidentally, the last issue of The Marvel Family featured a story called And Then There Were None. On the cover, the balloon read, Holy moly, what's happened to The Marvel Family? The late Otto Binder, who wrote that story, swore that it was just one of life's coincidences. Epilogue 2 It seems that while the Big Red Cheese dwelt in comic book limbo, the trademark on the title Captain Marvel expired and no one at Fawcett thought it worthwhile to renew. As a result, the 60s saw two versions of comic books called Captain Marvel and one called Captain Shazam which never saw the light of day on the newsstand. The version of Captain Marvel by Marvel Comics was still around when Fawcett agreed to lease its old characters to DC, and so the original Captain Marvel couldn't legally get back his own title. Thus was born Shazam, featuring the world's mightiest mortal. Why can't DC use Captain Marvel's name on the covers? Because according to the law of trademarks, to be continued on the New York State Bar Exam. That was When Titans Clash in Court from The Amazing World of DC Comics, issue 17. Cheekily written by Michael Uslan, J.D., or Juris Doctor, a holder of a Doctor of Jurisprudence degree. 
and Mr. Uslan actually did earn this degree from Indiana University in 1976. Credited assistant J. Cheever Loophole is a reference to the ridiculous lawyer character portrayed by Groucho Marx in the Marx Brothers comedy film At the Circus. Also ridiculous were Cheever's credentials of LSMFT, which refers to the once-famous cigarette advert slogan and stood for Lucky Strike Means Fine Tobacco. When Titans Clash was a running gag in the later issues of Amazing World, a playful jab at Mark Grunewald, a then-former Marvel Comics writer who had recently joined the DC staff. Essentially, When Titans Clash was the title of numerous tales published by Marvel Comics in the 1960s, including an Iron Man story in Tales of Suspense issue 65, a Mighty Thor yarn from Journey into Mystery Annual Number 1, and an X-Men tale from X-Men issue 29, to name a few. Apparently, there were a number of Titans in the Marvel Universe that did not have much anything else to do. This joke was used to good effect in the Short Circuits feature in the incredible, unpredictable 13th issue of Amazing World. Short Circuits was a four-page lampoon of the fanzine's Direct Currents feature that announced upcoming DC Comics, listing fake announcement blurbs that poked fun at DC's regular titles and characters, some paraphrased examples of which were used in the opening of this podcast. In Amazing World issue 13, three of the Short Circuits listings were implied to be written by, quote, a former writer at Marvel, but all of the story titles were When Titans Clash. And yes, one of them was a faux blurb for the Teen Titans comic. Interestingly, there was a Superman story that had used the title When Titans Clash decades earlier in the 17th issue of the first volume of Superman, published in 1942. The Amazing World issue 17 feature made a sly reference to the fact that there is no existing copy of Wiz Comics No. 1. The actual first issue of Fawcett's Captain Marvel Adventures was a limited print ash can produced for advertising and trademark purposes. And this was not even a Captain Marvel adventure, for the mighty Ashcan hero was actually named Captain Thunder at first. The Ashcan itself was released in the fall of 1939 with the title of Flash Comics Issue 1, until Fawcett found out that the Flash Comics title was already in use. So the Ashcan was quickly re-released as Thrill Comics No. 1. I understand Fawcett's plan was to have the second issue of Thrill Comics be the first newsstand release, with the lead Captain Thunder feature essentially reprinting the eight pages of the Ashcan issue one story in color, plus additional pages to complete the truncated story. However, another comic book with the title Thrilling Comics was being published at that time by an outfit called Better Publications, so Fawcett could not trademark the too similar Thrill Comics name. Consequently, the book was renamed Wiz Comics for issue number two, which explained why there was never a Wiz Comics issue one. But the trademark headache for Fawcett did not end there. 
their lead feature character, Captain Thunder, had the same name as a secondary feature character just published in Fiction House's Jungle Comics issue 1. So Fawcett's Thunder had to be renamed. A staff artist's suggestion of Captain Marvelous was shortened by editorial to the now-known Captain Marvel. The pages for the Ashcan story were re-lettered to accommodate the change. The Amazing World piece also mentioned the purchase of the Fawcett character Hoppy, the world's mightiest bunny, by Charlton Comics. This acquisition was the reason Hoppy did not appear in DC Comics' 1970s Shazam title. The result of an agreement finally being reached between Fawcett and DC to bring the original Captain Marvel and the Marvel family back in print. The DC legal department apparently did not inform Roy Thomas of this in 1981, who had Hoppy make a surprise appearance in DC Comics Presents Volume 1, Issue 34, which was the conclusion of Mr. Thomas's two-part Superman and Captain Marvel team-up story. I am not sure if Charlton had ever protested that use of Hoppy. At the time, Charlton had stopped publishing new comic book content and was strictly producing reprinted stories until they ceased operations in 1985. Two years prior, DC had acquired a number of Charlton's action heroes, and presumably Hoppy along with them, for he would sporadically appear in DC comic stories from 1986 onwards. The Amazing World piece ended with a note of how Fawcett's trademark to the Captain Marvel name had lapsed in 1963, opening the door for Marvel Comics to trademark the sobriquet for their Cree warrior Marvel in 1967. This was why the DC 1972 Captain Marvel revival, as well as the 1974 Saturday morning live-action television series, had to use the title Shazam!, the tagline under the comic book cover's huge Shazam logo proclaimed, The Original Captain Marvel, an apparent dig at the Marvel Comics Marvel series that was being published at the time. However, as holder of the trademark, Marvel Comics was fine with allowing DC to use the character name of Captain Marvel within the stories, but not on the covers. After a cease and desist order, DC changed the tagline so the covers read, Shazam! The World's Mightiest Mortal, beginning with issue 15 all the way up to issue 35, the final issue of the run. Marvel Comics Marvel was one of the two 1960s Captain Marvels mentioned at the end of this Amazing World feature. The other Captain Marvel title was produced in 1966 by a small publisher called MF Enterprises, which was owned by pulp magazine entrepreneur Myron Foss, who also operated under the more renowned horror magazine imprint, Eerie Publications. This Captain Marvel was a crime-fighting android from another planet, with the ability to split his body at the joints and mentally control his disembodied parts. And yes, despite the series' cartoony artwork, this looked just as gruesome as it sounds. The android Marvel would separate his parts by uttering a command word, split. He would then reassemble his body by shouting the word, Zam, and that starts with an X, and is yet reminiscent of the magic word of Shazam, no? 
The MF version of Captain Marvel appeared in only six comic book issues, featuring characters that included a young ward named Billy Braxton, and adversaries going by the names of Plastic Man, Dr. Fate, The Bat, Professor Doom, Colonel Cold, Tarzak, King of the Sharks, and The Destroyer. To no surprise to anyone, these Captain Marvel comics and MF publications were shut down as a result of a number of legal challenges. Going back to the DC version, despite referring to the character as Captain Marvel in the Shazam television series and the 1970s DC comic book stories, most of the casual and non-comic reading public had apparently presumed Shazam to be the name of the hero. I recall a few Amazing Heroes articles about upcoming appearances of Captain Marvel, in which the story writer was quoted to say something along the lines of, And I want readers to know that his name is not Shazam. Eventually, DC purchased all rights to Captain Marvel and the Marvel family from Fawcett in 1991. And after two decades of using the name Captain Marvel in stories, with the name Shazam on the cover, DC Comics decided to simply rename the character to just Shazam in 2012 to essentially eliminate any reader confusion. Series writer Jeff Johns reportedly stated in interviews that, quote, Everybody thinks he's called Shazam already. Not true, Mr. Johns. I happen to know for a fact that I never did. While he may be called Shazam now, Billy Batson's alter ego will always be, to me, Captain Marvel. Let us take another podcast promo break, and then we will explore one of the rare exceptions to the sliding timelines inherent in comic book continuity. Aqua Rob, Fire Shag, Lady Vipers, Quite the Hag, Batman Jones, Lady Cop, Satin Satan, Smokin' Hot, The Fortress of Solitude, Master Villain's Attitude, Nubia, Steampunk Kid, Lanterns Made Up, Bouncer, Does Deflect, Astrolab to Pass Projects, Golden Age, Firestorm, Fireman, Feral. Wonder Woman, Superman, before the crisis began, Cal Durham, Domino, Professor Zoom, self cameo, Super Duper, Topo Quisp, Earth 2 Aquaman exists, bonus page of Anti-Lad has a phallus for a head, Superwoman and Lokai, the Crusader slipped and died, Human Squid, Flying Fish, TRS-80, Wiz Kids, Woozy Winks is so rotund while I Ching speech is quite profound, a bandit name, break away, so much more I have to say. DC had started with who's who, Zoom you can know. Story's addendum has built such momentum. He had to start the Zooms Who, and the Earth One's long gone. The entries still go on and on and on and on and on. Zooms Who, Zoom Yukonori's addendum to the definitive directory of the DC Universe, part of Who's Who in the DC Universe, the Loose Leaf Edition. A very proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. 
Welcome, one and all, to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track, where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks, and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up and all the nets have been removed. Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man? What kind of hero? There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the death-defying human flycast! Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The death-defying Human Flycast is a limited episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life Human Fly, a daredevil with a murky past and a desire to be the best stuntman in history, until the day he just disappeared. The actual Human Fly would vanish as suddenly as he had materialized, but not before sparking a comic series featuring what would be the wildest superhero ever. Because he was real. The Death Defying Human Flycast. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's gonna be wild. Podcast host Professor Zumiyuki Nori is constantly being asked to guest on numerous podcasts. This is actually not true, but assume it is. But Zoom has not time to guest all requests, not even yours. So what do you do? Hello. I am Blot. I am a bot. Using an especially perpendicular algorithm. I have dissected every pronounceable syllable from over 1,000 hours of host Professor Zoom's podcast host recordings of him hosting, to create a voice simulation program that gives you a Zoomulated podcast host of your very own. Announcing, book Zoom with Phonics. Simply pay the lowest low price of 99.99.99, and you will get an exclusive Zoomulated podcast hosting voice program. That says aloud whatever you type in Professor Zoom's vocal voice. Just listen to this simulated demonstration and satisfaction from these satisfied customers. Howdy. Welcome to Tales of the Terra Man where I tell you all about the comic adventures of the one and only Terra Man, starring me, the Terra Man. I'd like to welcome a special guest, Professor Zoom Yukonori. Hello, Terra Man. It is my pleasure to be a guest with such a fine podcasting host such as your good self. Aw, shucks, Professor. You're too kind. Where is that overgrown swamp weed, Solomon Grundy? Hey, little cowboy man. Little Professor man never talk about Grundy like that. Oh, yeah? Solomon Grundy is a stooped idiom. Aw, dead burn typos. Oh, yeah? 
Little Cowbay Man is a bug dotty head. Oh, no you don't. If Grundy's brains were dynamite, there will not be a trough to blow his toes. Why, you... Terrarium is a not-what. How'd you like to fell highway you took? Terrapin so numb. Book zoom with phonics. Only $99.99.99. And if you order promptly. You'll also get this bonus autocorrect feature that was already included. Wheel will wall. Autocorrect strokes against. That is book zoom with phonics. Get your zoomulated botcast host today. Call now the operators who are standing by other 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 operators. Welcome back to FW Presents The Amazing World of DC Comics. And we will be turning to a piece from issue 16, cover dated December of 1977. An issue focused on the golden age of DC Comics. And age is the operative word. As many of us are aware, comic book characters tend to exude a sense of permanence, while the rest of the world continues to move forward. Archie Andrews and the gang, for example, have been teenagers since the 1940s. But they are constantly modern teenagers, reflecting the styles and trends of the time of each Archie Comics story publication. In the pre-crisis DC continuity, Superman had been perpetually 29 years old. So much so that the published adventures of Superboy would continuously slide forward from the 1930s to the 1960s. There was actually a one-page editorial in the back of Superboy Volume 1, Issue 171 that essentially admitted that the adventures of Superboy would always take place 14 years in the past, even as the years continued to roll along. This sliding timescale actually pertains to the Superman of Earth-1. The Golden Age Superman of Earth-2, however, along with the early members of the Justice Society, have their history deeply rooted in World War II, and thus their history could not slide forward. Even when the Society made later appearances in team-ups with the Justice League and to their eventual return to their regular title, All-Star Comics, in 1976. In Amazing World Issue 16, then-All-Star Comics writer Paul Levitz shared his thoughts not only about the estimated age of these Golden Age heroes, but about how that age can drive both new characterizations and story possibilities. Aging the All-Stars by Paul Levitz One of the universal constants of comics is that time stands still. 
Little Orphan Annie never becomes Daddy Warbuck's replacement at the head of his vast corporation. The Katzenjammer kids never take over for the inspector. And Batman never retires to make way for Robin. It's one of those golden rules that makes comics unique and allows readers to be lost in the unreality. It's unthinkable to break it. Or at least it used to be. These days, the ground rules have changed a bit. Beginning with the 60s, it became permissible to have your characters grow, develop, and even <gasps> age. In fact, a few writers started to consider growth and development a necessary part of writing good comics. All of which is by way of prologue to the statement that a part of the reason for all-star comics' continued existence is the fact that the heroes chronicled therein age before the reader's eyes. Or at least I think that's part of the reason. With the uncountable audiences that comics attract, there's no way to be sure. It began with Julie Schwartz and Gardner Fox, of course. When they revived the Justice Society of America in 1963, they indicated that the team had been out of business for over a decade, and that meant that several of the members had entered into middle age. Then the JSA series was revived on a regular basis, some 12 years later, and writer-editor Jerry Conway tried to make use of the fait accompli. He introduced some younger heroes, and tried to set up a level of conflict based on a heroic generation gap. He succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. Readers were already wildly enthusiastic by the time I took over as the series' regular writer, some four and a half issues later, and the same complexities that made me write the book with a scorecard at my side were the very elements that thrilled them. Clearly, if I wanted to keep that up, I had to get the characters straight in my own head. Each of the JSAers is a tremendously complex creature, you see. Their individual series were among the best of the 40s, and the total number of tales they've appeared in is almost beyond reckoning, and certainly beyond reading, at least in the limited time I had available. So I had to capsulize each one's background. When that was done, I discovered a common denominator. Each of their character bits was related to what the passing years had done to them. I felt like I had just adapted passages to comic book form. Take Green Lantern, for example. He started out as an engineer, building bridges. Then he discovered the magic lantern and started on his way to fame and fortune. Within a couple of years, he was a radio star, and by the time he was into middle age, he was the president of Gotham Broadcasting. He never married, because during the peak of his superhero career, he was too busy being a man about town. When his crisis came, it totaled him. Here's a 57-year-old man who has put his whole life into two things, a company and a non-profit career as a superhero. He has no family, and his only close friend is off on another planet. Everybody does remember Doiby Dickles, don't they? His company goes kaput, naturally he isn't far behind. 
Paralleling what happened to Green Lantern is The Flash, in sort of a might-have-been situation. Flash is a little younger, maybe 55 years old. He continued with his career in science. No matter how fascinating the superheroics got, he still put a portion of his life on the bedrock of his own talents. The Keystone Research Lab was founded about the time he got married, just after he hung up his winged boots in the 50s. There's a solid confidence to this man that few JSAers can match. The third active JSAer from that generation of heroes is Hawkman, and age has treated him as kindly as it had the Flash. As Carter Hall, he and his wife run a small private museum, and in their costumed identities they back each other up as well. But take Shira away from him, and he collapses. They function perfectly as a team, but have grown together so much they can't function apart. Chronologically, he weighs in at 57 years, but the fact that he's a reincarnated Egyptian prince makes for some confusion, as well as an interesting upcoming storyline. The rest of the original team is retired these days. Sandman has been inactive since the JLA-JSA adventure Creature in the Velvet Cage, brooding about what to do to cure Sandy. Here, too, age is a factor. Sandman was one of the first superheroes, since he started his career in the Masked Man tradition of the 30s. Without any superpowers or similar superstamina, West Dodds wouldn't be too much use in a fight today. Our Man recently returned to action, but couldn't keep up with the changes since he was last active. He's in his 60s now, and although the Miraclo pills are strong enough to keep him superheroic, they can't give him the patience to deal with the inevitable bickering that modern individuality causes. He also has a secure home life to retreat to. Although he married late in life, his marriage and his work in the chemicals industry gave him a life beyond the JSA. The Adams started his career as a college student, so he's only about 53 today by my reckoning, which still is a bit old to be running around if your only superpower is your strength. But it's certainly young enough to leave plenty of possibilities open, and if current plans materialize, they'll all be explored. Batman's life history has been pretty thoroughly recounted in the last year, through the Huntress origin and his conflict with the JSA. His aging process clearly sparked both of these. His marriage to Selina Kyle, the birth of Helena, his gradual turn towards public service, Selina's death, his rejection of the Batman identity, and his new job as police commissioner after Gordon's departure all form a clear timeline and all indicate that he has been held together the whole time by his decision to turn from a life entirely built around being Batman to one where Bruce Wayne is the dominant figure. So now, at age 60, he's gone through a lot of changes, but has weathered them all. Superman is a different case. In a certain sense, he's the only one who was born to be a hero, and as such can never really retire. But just as he has adopted other conventions of life on Earth, when on Terra, he has retired to the background to allow his younger cousin the spotlight. 
By our reckoning, he's about the same age as Batman, but there's no real way of knowing how a Superman will age. That leaves two of the originals, and both of them fall outside the usual process of aging. For that reason, their age wasn't the key to pegging their personalities, but their antiquity was. The Spectre is a ghost, of course, the spirit of Jim Corrigan, living on in what is really Corrigan's lifeless body. While this doesn't really affect the age of either, Corrigan was about 25 when the murder took place, so he's about 62 now. But the fact that the Spectre is dead places him beyond the whole aging process, beyond growth. He's the absolute quantity of justice untempered by mercy, and since he's dead, he can't progress to the higher state of justice with mercy. On the other hand, Dr. Fate is ageless. He's the immortal persona of the guardian of order and life, who possesses the shell of Kent Nelson in order to function among men. The two are separate beings, even to the point of having separate speech patterns, and the strain on Nelson of having such an ethereal guest is awesome, and made all the worse by the fact that the spirit is ageless and keeps Kent Nelson far more youthful than otherwise possible. Kent Nelson is really hitting 60, but no one would take him for a day over 40. And Fate's power even extends to Inza Nelson, keeping her youthful as well. The fact that their marriage can hold up, and the two not go through breakdowns, is a tribute to both their strength and to the benevolence of Fate's spirit. But inherent conflicts are what make the character interesting. Curiously, though, the original JSAers have held up better than the second group. Johnny Thunder, being after all an ordinary man, rarely attends even the formal meetings of the team anymore. He's finding it a little hard to be the sprightly spirit of the team in his fifth decade. Starman returned to action recently after having been laid up with a broken leg during the early part of the new All-Star run. But Ted Knight's mind is literally in the stars, and the astronomy that was once his hobby is now a full-time occupation. He's happy with the improvements the Star-Spangled Kid had made in the Cosmic Rod, and the JSA has nothing to offer him now. He's one of those people who comfortably settles into a rut with age. Dr. Midnight finds it much harder to quit. He's never let handicaps beat him, and age is at worst a handicap. And he doesn't intend to be stopped by his 60th birthday either. He came back for a tour of duty not long ago, and although the incident of Dr. Fate's death depressed him enough to make him leave again, he's still ready to jump back into action if the need arises. In the meantime, he's doing more medical innovating. Wonder Woman also fits in the ageless category. Although she gave up her immortality when she left Paradise Island, she doesn't age at the same pace as ordinary mortals. Right now, she's happy to be involved with military intelligence, but that's only a phase in her extraordinarily long life. Eventually, she's sure to rejoin the team, if any of the others are still around by then. The next group of JSAers are a few years younger, having joined the team after the war. 
Wildcat is the only active member of this generation, and he's just hitting 50 as these words are written. That's not an old man by any measure, but it is an age of re-examination, and all the more so for a man who has lived by violence. Ted Grant isn't sure where his life is going, and that's what makes him a worthwhile character. Within the next year, he'll be looking for a life of his own for the first time, and that's a tough job at that age. Mr. Terrific was faced with a similar problem, but he had kept up something of a private life as Terry Sloan, Playboy. He solved his problem by giving up the Mr. Terrific identity and turning back to his private life. Only one other character joined the JSA during the Golden Age, and that was Black Canary. In her case, Al accept the premise that it's a woman's privilege not to tell her age, especially not to someone who doesn't even write her adventures. Pardon me, I forgot someone. Remember the original Red Tornado, Ma Hunkle? Well, as far as the current All-Star run, I suggest you do exactly what I have done. Forget her. That leaves us with the second-era heroes. In a certain sense, they're the most vital element. Without their counterpoint to the old team, there would be no conflict and no characterization. Star-Spangled Kid actually spans the gap between the two teams in one sense, since he began his career in 1940. But since he spent the three decades in between in limbo, see Justice League number 100 if you don't believe me, he still feels and acts like an 18-year-old. He's out of reach of his family, friends, and everything he grew up with. Sylvester Pemberton has been dead to the world all these years, and only the star-spangled kid survives, forcing him to find all his life within the JSA. That's what draws him irresistibly toward Power Girl, even though he's just as incapable of understanding her as Wildcat is. Robin bridges that self-same gap in another way. He also began his career years ago, as a very young child, and being a superhero is all he could be expected to know. However, he lucked out. A few years after he began working with Batman, Bruce married Selina, and that solid upbringing made him devote a portion of his energies towards the solving of the world's problems on another level. So now he's a diplomat, 35, and only gets involved with the JSA when they cross paths. Power Girl has her own age-related problems. Although she's 18, her last real memories are of her infancy on Krypton. She spent most of the intervening years in a time-warping starship. See Showcase number 97-99 to for details and was brought up in an imaginary universe created and run by the sentient starship. And if that kind of upbringing wouldn't make an individual reject outside help, I don't know what would. That problem lingers on in her relationship with the other JSAers. The new Red Tornado is also a second-era member, but now that he's switched over to the Justice League, I'll cop a plea on him as well. That leaves only the Huntress, and her story has been well-developed in recent months, so I won't run through it again. But contrast it with Power Girls in your own mind, 
and I think you'll be able to see the source of some of our upcoming conflicts. Hmm. I just noticed that I've been going on for several pages about why the aging process is important to All-Star without ever addressing what started out to be the topic of this article. How to gauge the age of the All-Stars. The beginning step is to construct a timeline of reality, slightly different from our own since Earth 2 is involved, but similar enough that readers can track it easily. And in the case of the JSA members, World War II is the most relevant landmark. The team divides on rather simple grounds. Those active long before the war, those who began their careers during the war, and those who came into the superhero racket afterwards. This automatically puts their ages within certain brackets, since World War II on Earth II was virtually identical to the one we experienced, except for the multitude of superheroic interventions. Then the question of what the heroes were doing in their private lives enters into it. Dr. Charles McKnighter was already a physician, so obviously he was a good deal older than college student Al Pratt. These are the prime facts that you have to work from. Thereafter, it's all interpretive. Now that you see how simple it is, you can see why I didn't spend an entire article on the subject it's much more fascinating to use the facts to delve into the characters' heads and make them into more realistic people. Try it with your favorite characters and see. That was Aging the All-Stars by Paul Levitz from The Amazing World of DC Comics, Issue 16. At the time this Golden Age issue of Amazing World was released, Issue 71 of All-Star Comics was currently on the newsstands. Readers and creators were unaware that it would be three issues later that the series would meet its end, a victim of the so-called DC implosion of 1978. But I am getting a little ahead of myself. First, to provide a few annotations to storylines referenced by Mr. Levitz in this article. Green Lantern's noted crisis was a financial one due to an economic recession. It was first mentioned in All-Star Comics issue 60, and in issue 64 it was revealed that the Gotham Broadcasting Company was a half of a million dollars in debt. This led to Alan Scott declaring bankruptcy and losing the company in issue 65. Scott's despair made him susceptible to the villainous psychopirate, who forced Green Lantern to attack the Justice Society in issue 68. The so-called death of Dr. Fate that had depressed Dr. Midnight had taken place in All-Star Comics issue 63, after Fate sustained serious injuries in a battle with the villain named Vulcan in All-Star Comics issue 61. Though Fate was revived by the end of the story via the mystic force of Naboo, Kent Nelson did clinically die in Dr. Midnight's care, so Midnight still felt that he had failed as both a superhero and a surgeon, and decided to leave the Justice Society for a short while. The Creature in the Velvet Cage story involving the Sandman 
had taken place in Justice League of America, Volume 1, Issue 113. That issue's story served to reveal why the Sandman, Golden Age hero of York City, switched from his purple and golden skin-tight costume to fight crime in his original double-breasted suit with hat and gas mask, and without his crime-fighting partner, Sandy. Years ago, an experimental silicoid gun device that the Sandman was testing exploded and changed Sandy into a gigantic silicoid monster, who flailed with rage until he passed out from the strain of the transformation. To prevent his partner from causing any further harm, Sandman imprisoned Sandy in a special cage that kept him unconscious for years. Overcome with guilt, Sandman destroyed his purple and yellow costume, which reminded him of Sandy's plight, and returned to fighting crime in his original costume. In issue 113 of Justice League, a minor earthquake disrupted the cage enough to free Sandy, who seemed to be going on a rampage throughout York City. But he was actually using his new form, and the powers that came with it, to prevent greater earth tremors from destroying the city. Sandy had initially lost the power of speech due to his years of slumber, but eventually regained it to explain what he was doing. Realizing that Sandy's initial outburst was temporary due to the pain and shock of the transformation, a distraught and guilt-ridden Sandman realized that he had imprisoned his young partner for years for no reason. I believe this may have been the first DC comic book story featuring a sidekick being wronged by the mentor, a trope that had become more commonplace in comic book stories of recent years. In fact, in the 1980s DC Comics Presents backup feature, Whatever Happened to the Sandman, in DC Comics Presents Volume 1, Issue 42, and Whatever Happened to Sandy the Golden Boy, in Issue 47, Sandman had essentially placed Sandy into a special hospital to find a cure, and then had a psychiatrist alleviate his guilt by hypnotizing him into forgetting everything about being the Sandman, including his partner Sandy. He eventually regained his memory years later, and discovered that the doctor in charge of helping Sandy decided to kidnap him instead, and use his silicoid body to create earthquakes to extort York City. The Sandman eventually tracked down the Doctor, who went by the villainous moniker of the Shatterer, freed Sandy, and actually cured him of his monstrous state by exposing him to a carbon-based explosion and relying on comic book science. I suppose that was enough for Sandy to instantly forgive the Sandman for abandoning him for a few years. The history of Bruce and Helena Wayne were covered in issues 66-71 to 71 in All-Star Comics, as well as in DC Superstars issue 17, which featured the origin of the Huntress. Bruce and Helena's story would eventually culminate in a three-part tale in which the Earth-2 Bruce Wayne was murdered. This story was originally planned for publication in All-Star Comics issues 75-77, to 77, but again, the DC implosion had put that storyline temporarily on hold. Four months later, those planned all-star comic stories would see print in the Adventure Comics Anthology title, 
in a new Justice Society feature beginning in issue 461. However, not every Justice Society installment had the standard all-star full issue length of 17 pages. The three-part Death of Batman story in Adventure Comics issues 461 to 463 had 13 pages in Part 1, 15 pages in Part 2, and then a full 17 pages in Part 3. I suspect that the first two installments originally had 17 pages, with some of those pages devoted to story subplots planned for later issues of All-Star Comics. Those pages were likely removed since those subplots would not be fulfilled, given that the Justice Society feature was limited to just six issues of Adventure Comics. These missing subplots may have likely involved Hawkman, the Atom, or Wildcat, as hinted within Mr. Levitt's Amazing World article. Alas, we readers would never see what Mr. Levitt's had in mind, for four years later, in the pages of a new title called Infinity Incorporated, writer Roy Thomas would take the storylines of the Justice Society members in completely new directions, though those characters would still retain their golden years. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have enjoyed this brief glimpse into the amazing world of DC Comics. Please feel free to share your thoughts on this program in the show notes page on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Perhaps there will be another opportunity for me to share more of my favorite pieces in a future episode of FW Presents. Until then, be sure to tune in to my upcoming Antiques and Misadventures with the Legion of Zoom in the second season of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Thank you again for listening. And goodbye. This has been Fire and Water Presents The Amazing World of DC Comics. Produced by Professor Zoom Productions in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Sound editing by Isamu Hideaki Yukonori and Adrian Zett. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Zoom Yukonori can also be found at zoom-yukonori.blogspot.com. With the exception of the Amazing World transcripts, the views expressed on this show belong solely to the host, who is not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. Fire and Water Presents The Amazing World of DC Comics is a Professor Zoom Productions production. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. 
For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts.